kids, you are dismissed. For everybody else, you know, that is here, that made the effort to be here tonight, what is happening? Hey, that's why we, re hey, hang tight. I, uh, we have gifts. I promise these amazing gifts, if you came here tonight, we went all out. So they're going to begin passing these amazing gifts out to you right now. Um, you're going to be blown away by these gifts. Now, if you want, I'm telling you, oops, it'd help if I put my microphone on, right? Jeez, Louise, it's been a long day. Uh, it would help if you would, um, if you want, you can go ahead right now and you can stick that sticker right on your shirt. That's how I realized I didn't have my mic on. You can go ahead and put, if you want. Now, if you want to save that sticker to maybe put on your mirror at home or, you know, in your car, you can do that. But right now, you can go ahead and put on the sticker that says, I survive, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what is there to survive? I haven't read this. Some of you have read it. Uh, Mike, where's he at? Mike uh, read the wrong chapter. He said, I don't really see anything that bad in this chapter. I said, no, it's chapter 15. And he immediately says, oh, yeah. So we're going to get to it. We're doing a series called Monarchy of Misfits about Saul and about David, the two first kings of Israel as we walk through uh, 1 Samuel through Christmas and then probably 2 Samuel, first part of next year. And if you are reading along, you'll notice that the chronology uh, of these stories, it's not really such a big deal for the author because he's jumping all around and actually the storyline. And so he'll go forward, he'll go backwards. In this time, it wasn't really about chronology. It was to get down the history, but the whole purpose of the Bible is not to be just a history book, nor is it to be a science book, nor is it to be a magic book of spells, nor is it to be a rule book. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it tells us the purpose of Scripture. Paul says, for whatever was written was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scriptures, these four important words, we might have hope. That's our goal tonight. That's our goal every week we come together. We look at God's Word, and we look for, and we try to find the hope. And so just like we always do, we're going to go through each verse. Verse 1, I won't read it to you, but it's just at the beginning, it's just kind of this formality uh, reminder that God made Saul king. He anointed him king. And so Samuel says, you need to listen to his voice. And then verse 2, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came to Egypt. He uses that phrase, settling accounts. Why would an account need to be settled? Well, the Amalekites had been opposing God's people for a long time. It goes all the way back to Moses and when the Israelites first came into the promised land. And these Amalekites, if you can put them into some kind of modern context, they, they fought wars kind of like a terrorist. And so they would pick off the weak. They just wouldn't be fair in war. They had brutal, brutal tactics. They were nasty. On top of that, they were a sinful people. They sacrificed their children not usually a good thing to do. They practiced bestiality. They had ancestral rape happening, and this occurred over and over. And they would come in, and they would constantly try to destroy Israel. And if you don't know, Israel is God's people. And so by trying to destroy God's people, it made them then the enemies of God. And so God begins this story here with, hey guys, you've made your bed. Now it's time to lie in it to the Amaleks. When we get to verse 3, Samuel is speaking God's word. He says, now, Saul, go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. 
Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And real quickly, you should learn why I really, really dislike this story. And you may pick up, too, this is a story that the atheists really, really love. Because here's God. He's like, kill everyone. No mercy. Take your swords, because they don't have guns, right? Take your swords and go kill all the grandmas. Go kill all the pregnant women. Kill the kids. Kill the babies. Now, most of us here, I assume, believe that life starts in the womb, and so we fight for life because we think it's sacred, and so we'll fight for the unborn, and we oppose abortion, but maybe, per God, we have it wrong, because God not only says it's acceptable to kill babies, but He literally here mandates the killing of children. And what will often happen if pastors are even willing to teach this chapter at all is they'll get to this verse And it'll be like, yeah, that's a difficult verse. Unfortunately, guys, we don't have time to unpack that this morning. That's for another day. God is always just in his actions moving on to the rest of the story. But that doesn't do it for me. I can't just move on. And so we're just going to camp out here on this verse for a good bit. And I pray that we do survive. In fact, I'm going to pray before we get into it. Father God, I pray right now that we bow down before the authority of Scripture. God, help us to find the truth. Help us to find the hope. Give us patience and endurance to see that you are a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen. And so think about this. An atheist friend comes up to you and they say, so you're, you're cool with a God that commands people to kill babies and authorizes genocide. How do you respond to that person? Or maybe it's your kids, and you're reading Bible stories with them, as we should, and they're like, Mommy, did God really say to kill the babies? How do you answer that? Or maybe it's your teenager. Why would I want to be a part of any faith that has a God like that? Or maybe it's like me, just simply the voice in your head. Can I really trust this God? Can I really believe in that kind of God? And maybe you think this is an isolated event in Scripture and we can deal with it and not worry about the rest of, you know, God in Scripture, but there's the flood where he kills every living creature except for the ones who go on the ark, you know, Noah and his family. The story of Abraham, God tells Abraham to kill his son Isaac, child sacrifice, it would seem, as a test. In Egypt, the tenth plague is striking down the firstborn of all these families, in Joshua, God orders the Israelites to enter the land of Canaan, this, Canaan, this promised land, and then he tells them to march from town to town, gut their men, take their wives, and put their children into slavery. And you can read that stuff, and it can take your breath away. Or for me, it causes more than one existential crisis. And that's why I know a lot of people don't read Scripture that want to tell me everything that Scripture says because they don't seem to remember all of these stories. And there's the great cop-out that we all do. Well, you know, that was a difficult time. It's 3,000 years ago. It was a tribal culture, much more violent. Plus, you know, we get to the New Testament and God lightens up. Does he? Let me read you God in the New Testament. Matthew, uh, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, then the king, and he's talking of God, then the king, God, will reply, turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his demons. We can get all the way through the Bible. We get to the last book, Revelation. It's all hellfire and end times judgment language. It's not nice and pretty. But if you're new to refuge, 
We pride ourselves on not being afraid to ask the difficult questions and talk about the difficult questions. We do believe that God wants us to take the Bible seriously, and that means when we come to chapters and verses like this, we can't just avoid eye contact like it doesn't exist and move on. And so let me give you some of the more predominant answers to this, and maybe some of these will sit well with you, maybe they won't, but but let me just give you some of the possible potential answer. Answer number one, shut up. It's really simple. It goes like this. God is the sovereign king of the universe. His unfathomable will is not to be questioned by us puny mortals, so shut up about it. Now, that's pretty simple and straightforward. There is some validity to that maybe, but is it, is it satisfying? I mean, the argument goes like this. God has the right to slaughter anyone, anytime. He created them. He gives life, and so life is his and his alone to take. If we process through that and then be like, hey, you know, everybody dies, and they die because God wills it. God takes 50,000 lives every single day, men, women, and children. God decides your last heartbeat. He decides if it's going to end through cancer or through choking on a Cheeto or old age. God rules and governs everything. And again, there are certainly truth to those words but it still leaves me with a whole lot of questions. Is that really the kind of God I want to believe in? How do I tell others and be a witness to that kind of God? And then what about Jesus' words about loving our enemies and doing good to those who try to hurt you? What about the fifth commandment that says, do not murder? Let's go to answer two. And the answer you usually get with this one is, well, war and death was just common. I mean, it was as common in most of human history. War was as common as going to Big Mac, or McDonald's and getting a Big Mac. It was just the necessity of living in that place and time. And, and I've actually came to this conclusion a few times as I think through it. And, and, and the, the theology I came up with, I call it the walking dead theology. And if you've ever watched the show Walking Dead, it's just this pure survival mentality because the world is ending and there's zombies and everywhere. And so they're, they're just trying to survive and get food. And so they attack each other. They steal each other food. And what happens in the show, it never fails. You go into a camp and you kill all the bad people, but you're like, but we're going to save these because these are the good people. And it's those good people who end up usually hurting them down the road. Or think of it this way. It's kind of the cancer mentality. Treatment often requires that you cut out the completely infected area. You can't leave any of that cancer behind. You got to take it all out. And so with the Amalekites for generations, they have opposed God's people. The children are infected with the parents' wickedness, and that infection has to be completely destroyed because little Amalekite boys grow up to be big Amalekite soldiers. If that doesn't do you for you, I call this answer 2A. It's the Hiroshima theology. If you think about our government in the 40s when we decided to finally end World War II, we authorized the killing of men, women, and children with a hydrogen bomb in Japan. And we justified that as a country because it would quickly end the war, thus saving perhaps millions of additional lives through those means. And so maybe that does it for you. Answer number three, well, God is nice too. And and sure, God killed an entire people group, but we have to balance that out with the parts of Scripture where he's a nice guy. He's a lot better. But for me, that's like saying the next time the bully shakes you down for your lunch money, just remember he does take a break from that from time to time, and he loves his mama. It doesn't really work. And of course, God is not always looking to shed blood in the Old Testament. He's called gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. 
But this, of course, is only for the people of God, for Israel, because he's their God. In fact, killing pagans and giving their land to Israel was one of the ways that God showed his compassion and love. Answer number four, these are really bad people. I mean, incest and rape, they got what they deserved. And we can think about this like the 9-11 retaliation in our mentality then. And so this is just God playing his role as a just judge, showing his holy and uncompromising intolerance of sin. And some people will say, frankly, it's surprising he doesn't do this more often. Answer number five, and I know this is going to sit weird with some of you, but it's just that God never actually said that. I mean, God never told Saul to kill at all. That's just what the Israelites believed that he said. They put words into God's mouth. And it goes something like this. They are tribal people, and so they saw God in tribal ways. And so they would describe God as a shepherd. They would describe God as a king, which we have some reference to, but they also often describe God as a tribal warrior who valued the same things they valued, like killing their enemies and taking their land. And so to understand that and where people are coming from, it's kind of like a kid who um, wants their parent to fit into whatever cultural model that a parent is supposed to fit into. And so maybe it's Emery and she's at school and everybody's talking about how her, their dads are handyman. And she's like, I got a dad. My dad's a handyman. He's great at fixing stuff too. And then she leaves out the fact that the only tool I know to use is a checkbook. And so we try, we try to make dad look good. And so the question is, why did God order all those men, women, and children to be killed? And with this one, the answer is, he didn't. Problem solved. Mm, excuse me. Get a question. Uh, what are we supposed to then do with a holy Bible where the God allows his children just to make stuff up? What God would allow himself to be cast in that kind of role? Why didn't he step in and stop these rogue storytellers? Why didn't he change their tribal way of thinking? And so, again, more questions than answers. And so how do we get God off the hook? Which answer is right? Beats me. I don't know. And some will say that as a pastor... We need to be clear from the pulpit. And if you believe something at least 51%, you need to preach it like you believe it 100%. And I just can't do that. I do find validity in all of those answers, and they all can play together, but I'm also not satisfied with any one of those answers. And so here's what I do know 100%. God was not vague in his command to Saul. It was clear. And number two is we need to keep searching then with endurance to find the hope of the scripture. That's its purpose. And so as we continue on, Saul mobilizes an army, 200,000 men. He warms another tribe, we've been good to us, move along, we won't kill you, get out of the way because we're going in and we're going to kill these other people. And then we get to verse 7, it says, then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and he has refused to obey my command. And so God's command was to kill everyone, kill everything. Saul's response to that command was, I'll kill nearly everyone. I'll kill everything except for the stuff that we want to keep for ourselves. And so we get to this, and the question is, is it enough to obey God 90%? 
Is it enough to obey God 95%? Is it enough to obey God 99.99999%? The answer, of course, we're getting to is no. What if we don't like the command? Can we rewrite it as Saul does? And again, the answer is simply no. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's either 100% we obey the command of God completely or it's failure. It's pass-fail. It's either an A-plus or a zero, nothing in between. Verse 12 says, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. God didn't give Israel this victory so that Saul could build a monument to his military prowess. But what we see here is pride and lack of humility and sin are always connected together. There's always pride hidden within every single sin. And so in Scripture, God's command is this. James chapter 4 says we're to humble ourselves. Colossians chapter 3 says we're to put on humility. 1 Peter chapter 3 says we're to have a humble mind. That's God's command. Our response is then, well, I'm pretty humble. I mean, that monument I built on Facebook to myself, that was like 80% humble, right? And a humble brag is okay, right? And I mean, it's so humbling to be the only person on the planet that 100% has all of Scripture figured out or all of politics or whatever figured out. Or maybe we just say those words, I deserve. I don't deserve this bad thing that's happening. Those words all lack humility. God's command is humility. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Verse 3, when Samuel, or 13, when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. I don't know if Saul here is like playing dumb. He doesn't care. He doesn't get it. But he's just like upbeat and, you know, having a great time. Verse 14, Samuel says, then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Verse 15, it's true that the, this is Saul, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats and cattle, but they are going to sacrifice them to you, Lord God. We have destroyed everything else. There's a quote, I don't know who it's assigned to, but it's simply the road of disobedience is littered with potholes of excuses. The road of disobedience is littered with potholes of excuses. Saul's like, it wasn't me. Excuse, it was the army who spared those sheep. Now, maybe that's just a, a blatant lie because a few chapters earlier, we're told that it was Saul and the army. But number two is he's a king. He's the commander-in-chief, and regardless, the buck stops with him. And so Samuel says to Saul, stop. Just stop it. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked? The Lord sent you on a mission. Here's what he said. Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. Sure, I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Saul has reinterpreted God's commands. We won the battle, so that's what matters. But Saul, or God, seems less interested right now in that winning of the battle in this moment than his will being obeyed by Saul. And so let me take you through this for us. Jesus gives a command. Let's say, he says, the bear good fruit. 
That's what he says in John. He says, be identified by your fruit. And we learn later on in Scripture what that fruit looks like. It's given to us through the power of the Spirit, and we're given love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. We're to bear that in our life. That is God's command. How often, then, do we reinterpret that fruit and that command to fit our situation? I did obey the Lord. I was patient with everyone except my kid because they need to hear me destroy my vocal cords from time to time. It got my point across, didn't it? There's no asterisks for patience with our kids. And so no matter how many excuses, and we can go through every command of God, no matter how many excuses you come up with partial disobedience, it's still disobedience. Verse 21 says, Then my troops brought in the best of the sheeps, just the best, of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the plunder, and we did it to sacrifice it to the Lord. And so Saul's now, he's saying, yeah, 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 I, I didn't do right. That business deal was shady, but look how much I brought to the church to give this week. Or maybe it's like, yeah, I showed up. I served like I was asked to do. I was bitter the whole time. <laughs> I gave that person the stink eye the whole time, but I gave it to you, Jesus. You're welcome. But Samuel replied, what is it more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission is better than offering. And we'll end our text tonight there and pick it apart a little bit more. So if our goal in this story is to find the hope, where do we find it in this story? If our goal is to see Jesus throughout all of Scripture, where is Jesus in the story? And maybe, maybe you're like, the hope is that the Old Testament ends, Jesus finally comes, and he lightens up this partial obedience nonsense and, and gives us a little bit of a break. But that's what some people thought when Jesus came, and here's how he answered them in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, verse 17, don't miss, this is Matthew, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. So if you ignore the least commandment, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, he says, you've heard it said you must not murder. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Verse 27, you had heard the command, you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. He's really lightening it up here. Verse 31, you have heard a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. And he goes on and on. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Not partway, not partially, 100%. Don't seek to be admired. Forgive everyone perfectly. Partial obedience to any one of these commands is disobedience. And he, to make that perfectly clear, verse 48 in that chapter, he says, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so we'll read that. We're like, what? What do we do with this? Well, well, no one is perfect, right? I mean, frankly, I'm doing better than most people. I'm showing up to church. I'm putting a few bucks in the offering. Generally, I'm a pretty nice person. I treat people fair. I'm certainly not like those unrepentant sinners over there. 
Partial obedience to God's commands is disobedience, period. The end. Maybe tonight you're like, gee, Brian, no wonder we got this sticker. (laughs) This is a bit of a fire and brimstone kind of sermon. We didn't sign up for that here at Refuge. Careful, someone might even call you a legalist in this church. But the point I'm trying to make tonight is just how soft our views on obedience are in Scripture, how myopic our view is of God's holiness. And if you want some proof, look to those who sit in judgment of others while they build monuments to their own goodness. They have no idea how broken and sinful they are, so they point at others. I believe the more sin you want to point out in the lives of others, the softer your view of Scripture is, the softer your view of God's holiness is. God did not give us victory in Christ so we could build monuments to our greatness. He gave us victory in Christ because we are so messed up, that's the only way we would survive. We are all disobedient to God's command. We're fully sometimes disobedient, sometimes it's partially, it doesn't really matter. It's all disobedience, and the Bible says that then makes us enemies of God. And we've seen tonight what God does to his enemies, right? Does that make you uncomfortable? It should. But that's the hope in the story. I, Brian Colbertson, put my hope in Christ because I began to read Scripture and it began to open up my heart. God began to allow me to see it. And He showed me my pride. He showed me my dual motives. He showed me my partial obedience. He showed me how much sin deceptively lurks in every good deed I do and on my very best days. He showed me truly how hopeless I am He showed me how hopeless humanity is, and it's in that hopelessness that I finally found some humility, as partial as it might be. It's in that hopelessness that I actually found the hope. And here is that hope, that we are more sinful and flawed than we would ever dare dream, but we are more loved and accepted than we ever dare hope. You want to hear a truly shocking verse from Scripture? Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is shocking. I gave you that sticker tonight, I survived. When you first came in or, or before we started the sermon, it was a free gift. You hadn't survived chapter 15 yet. I just gave it to you. So maybe, as we went through this chapter, it gave you a little confidence, like, okay, I am going to survive this. We're going to get through it. (laughs) There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Brian has a point, even though it seems to be taking a heck of a long time to get there. How much more confidence is there in knowing that God sees the depths of our depraved hearts and He loves us just the same? That He's already clothed us in His righteousness that He's already given us that free gift of grace, that we've already survived the battle before it's even begun. God did not change 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is holy. He cannot accept sin. It must be cut off completely. Even if I go through life 99.999% obedient and I'm nowhere near that, the Bible still says the wage of that 0.0001% of sin is death. My account must be settled. And so let's go back to our atheist friend. What a stupid religion. And so I respond, okay, so, so what is the outcome of your life? Where does it end? It's the same question. It's death. What is humanity's final destination in your worldview? And they might say, well, if we don't get these straws out of the ocean, you know, the world's going to explode and I guess we're all going to die or the sun's going to explode. But at some point in time, humanity's just going to poof, in, done, dead. And me, I respond, yikes. <laughs> that sounds pretty hopeless. <clears throat> Can I share my hope? That yes, I do believe a day is coming when God will settle the accounts with those who opposed him. That date has already been set. Christ will return and he'll declare judgment upon the world. But God's ready to hand you a free gift called grace. Survival before the battle even comes. And all you have to do, like you did with the stickers tonight, just accept it. And when you accept that gift, man... He gives you a new confidence. I can get through this trial. There is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Depression, addiction, coming out, gossip. I'm going to survive. Whatever illness comes your way, I'm going to get through it, even if it's meeting Jesus at the end of it. And then on that day, when this life ends, I still get to survive. And so where's the hope in this incredibly difficult story? that God became the Amalekites, who without mercy, God also completely destroyed on the cross to settle our account. And in so doing then, he made us Israel. He made us his people. He gave us victory over every enemy we face. He anointed us as kings and queens. Let's pray because we're going to praise that God. Father, Father God. God. May we realize that you are love. At the end of the day, you are love, Lord. And as we make our way through life, we're going to go through those hills and those valleys. May we judge by fruit, the goodness of fruit, and understand who you are, what you are, You call us to be perfect, and yet you love us no matter what. We're full of mistakes. We're kind of like toddlers to you, Lord. Help us to love our enemies and grow to be like Christ. It's in your holy name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Alrighty, and just a reminder, there is no church next Saturday. So we are meeting with our small groups, and if you have any questions about that, you can ask Brian or any other leaders that are around. I can't really tell. So, <laughs> All right, have a great night, you guys.